Welcome to Brave Dynamics. This is your host, Jeremy Yao. Leadership is harder than it looks. As a proven founder and Harvard MBA, I interview courageous entrepreneurs, executives, and investors every week. I also share my frontline experiences, coaching insights, and own professional development journey. If you're stepping up as a new leader, founding a startup, or venturing into the great unknown, this is the podcast for you. Pre-Series is a partner at Saison Capital, a fintech-focused venture capital fund that has done especially well in emerging markets like Southeast Asia and India. Their direct investments include Grab, Southeast Asia's largest startup and super app, as well as Shopback, Southeast Asia's largest shopping and cashback rewards platform. Their limited partner investments include global funds like Better Tomorrow Ventures, Quona Capital, and Antler. This year, they invested in companies such as Bukukas, Ula, Repute, and Tazapay. Chris grew up mostly in Singapore and graduated from the National University of Singapore with a bachelor's in engineering. His first job out of school was with Singapore's civil service in Enterprise Singapore, the agency that oversees policies related to small and medium enterprises. These were the early days of the technical system starting out in Southeast Asia and where his interest in venture capital started. After Enterprise Singapore, he joined SPH Ventures, a US Southeast Asia media and consumer tech-focused fund, and also spent time at Grab launching financial services in the Philippines. Chris is also married and a father of a very energetic four-year-old. He never outgrew his childhood hobby of playing computer games and is glad it has now become a cool thing to do. Hey, Chris, good to have you on board. Thanks for having me. Hi, Jeremy. So what's interesting is that you've had a really incredible journey as a VC in Southeast Asia and fintech. So I'm really excited to share your insights and personal journey with everybody out there. Sure, happy to share what I can. For those who haven't had a chance to catch a burger with you, like we just did, how would you describe your professional journey? So it's a bit of a mixed bag. Like I suppose most VCs, there isn't really a traditional path to VC. So uh, I think mine's different from most. So I'll probably start in university. Uh, That's where I did engineering. I was pretty sure at that point I was either going to public policy or be a hardcore engineer. I was quite a technical person back then. Finance definitely uh, never occurred to me. Uh, I didn't even know that VC as a job existed. So what happened was I started my career in Enterprise Singapore, which is a government agency in Singapore that looks after startups and SMEs. Um, And back then, that was 2012. So that was early days of the startup ecosystem in Singapore as well as Southeast Asia. There was a lot of government intervention back then just to get everything started. And as part of that, I managed to get opportunity to meet a lot of interesting founders as well as uh, VCs that were setting up shops uh, in Singapore. And that was my exposure to VC. I found it really interesting. Also decided that it's something that I'll at least like to try doing. And it was a kind of a good blend between understanding business models as well as some of my technical background came in helpful um, because most of it was tech, right? Most of the products were tech. So post-Enterprise Singapore joined SPH Ventures, uh, which is the corporate venture of a conglomerate in Singapore. Uh, it was probably one of the larger funds in Southeast Asia back then. 
And the interesting thing was they not only had a Southeast Asia mandate, they also had a U.S. mandate. Uh, so that gave me the opportunity to explore the technical system in the U.S. a little bit. was there for a couple of years. Uh, post that, joined Credit Sizon in the corporate development team. That's where I was seconded over to Grab uh, for about a year to launch financial services in the Philippines. And then post that, set up uh, Sizon Capital as one of the founding partners. So that, that was mostly my journey. It's kind of a mixture of public policy plus operation work and then also VC work. And some of the, I guess, the blended experience of everything uh, has been helpful, including the experience of being in the US, including the experience of having some technical education in university. Amazing. You know, so many people are curious about why it takes, you know, to get into VC or what a VC life is. is. I'm kind of curious, what was your first day as a hashtag VC like? Can you bring us to that room or that place when you first stepped into the hallowed halls of VC life? To be honest, I think I really lucked out on getting that first VC job. To be honest, I don't think I really had a good idea of what I was supposed to be doing. <laughs> and so I spent probably the most of the first day Googling. Uh, it's pretty amazing what you can learn on Google, uh, even back then. My boss did throw me off the cliff uh, from the first day. So he was that kind of boss. Uh, I started running my own deal on the very first day. So that meant I spent most of the first day Googling various uh, legal terms, which I had never come across before. It was the first time I even looked at a legal document because I came from engineering school, right? Uh, legal documents are uh, very far from that. So that's what I spent most of the day doing. And then subsequently, I think the biggest realization that I had maybe a couple of weeks into the job was that VC is fundamentally a business about people rather than about numbers and even business models can sometimes be secondary. So that was the largest misconception I had prior to joining VC and that VC was fundamentally a different asset class which I did have some exposure to uh, in, in Enterprise Singapore. So that realization was quite a big one and indeed actually increased my interest in VC uh, rather than diminish it uh, which was the main reason why I stayed in the industry. Amazing. I mean First off, love Google. We all do, I'm sure. Every time I step into a new job, yeah, I think my first day or first night is busy Googling all different terms, and especially for legal contracts, right? <laughs> the operative is paying through the nose, right? For a lawyer to actually walk you through those terms as well. And yeah, I think that's uh, something that I totally agree with you. I think that VC is very much a people business. So what's interesting for sure is that you've obviously grown up in Southeast Asia and you've also looked at companies across the US and Southeast Asia at multiple VC firms, right? So I'm just curious, what do you think? Is there a difference between US and Southeast Asia startup ecosystems and the startups themselves? Yeah, definitely. So I think um, starting with the startups, in the US, I think there's definitely a lot more innovation happening. You do see a lot of new business models that you have previously not seen. Whereas for Southeast Asia, it tends to be more execution focused. Right? So you tend to take businesses that have already existed in other geographies and then try to localize that in the Southeast Asian context or in an emerging markets context. So I think that would be the key difference. And then because of that, creates a very different type of VCs as well. So I, I think in the US, it's generally more common to find VCs that 
are more technical. So they do understand technical details. Uh, they have a more technical background and that's important for assessing certain types of startups. Whereas in Southeast Asia, that skill set isn't really required uh, as a VC right? because most skills here don't have that element. And so you tend to have more VCs that either come from a finance background or they were ex-founders, ex-operators themselves or ex-operators in like big tech companies. Right? Uh, because that type of experience is more valuable. So that would be the main difference. And just in terms of size of the ecosystem, US is a lot larger. It's been around longer. Uh, so that also means competition is higher. Right? Both volume and competition is higher. I think that that makes the dynamics very different on a day-to-day basis for most VCs. In the US, I think VCs have a much higher bar that they need to hit in terms of the value add that they bring to founders, the type of reputation that they have in the ecosystem, uh, the track record that they build, all those things matter more and the bar is higher uh, compared to Southeast Asia. That's just natural. I think even in Southeast Asia, that bar has certainly risen across the last decade and hopefully it will continue to do so because I think that's good for the ecosystem as a whole, uh, good for new founders that are raising capital as well. So I think that would be the key difference. And then you see that playing out in a lot of different subtle ways, right? Like VC Guide, for example, it's been quite big in the US this year. That doesn't exist in Southeast Asia, but certainly exists in the US and has received a lot of participation uh, from the US ecosystem. Yeah, that's so true. First off, for those wondering what VC Guide is, it's just a directory and review site for how VCs are performing. Uh, you can check out the link in the uh, transcript that's linked on the Brave Dynamics website. And I want to respond to something, Chris. I think something that is very true and I think non-obvious for a lot of people is actually the time scale of the ecosystems, right? Which you mentioned at every stage is that, you know, the US started first in many ways. They invented venture capital out of the PE side, out of Boston and so, so forth, and Harvard Business School. And conversely as well, you know, the startup side, the innovation side, they've had a longer run in it. And that changes the maturation of the ecosystems. And so I always you know, when people ask me about it, I always say it's like, well, it's not apples to apples, right? I mean, as I say, like, it's kind of like comparing maybe a 30-year-old man's fitness with a... <laughs> I don't know what the right analogy is, but I think the question is more like, what is Southeast Asia's, like, future to play, right? And I mean, I guess you see, like, a lot of similar dynamics, you know, kind of continue to play out. So you mentioned that, right? So you mentioned a couple of key trends, right? VCs competing to higher levels of service quality, for example, value add and reputation. Let's dive into that and then we'll talk more about the innovation side as well. So do you see that as a continuing trend across the next 10 years? Yeah, definitely. So I think as Southeast Asia becomes a larger market uh, from a, a tech industry perspective, then it naturally will investors right across the value chain. So VCs, GPs, uh, as well as LPs that are interested uh, so that naturally will create more competition. And we've already seen that in the last 10 years. So when I, I started in VC, I think there were something like five funds in Singapore uh, that were of a decent size and considered credible investors. Currently, I, I don't know what the number is, but it's definitely many multiples of five. And you're hearing about new funds pop up every day. So I think that is a trend that will definitely continue. And just because, of course, the number of startups also increase, I do think competition as a whole, supply of capital will definitely outstrip the growth or the growth rate of number of quality entrepreneurs in the ecosystem. So I think that's a positive overall. One, it definitely is a lot easier to raise capital as a good entrepreneur in Southeast Asia. 
or two, also the bar just gets higher. So VCs have to do more to get their allocation. After they get their allocation for the first round, they have to do more to justify that they get their allocation in future rounds as well. Because uh, that's really how most funds make their money. Uh, I think that's a good sort of accountability system in place, right, for VCs with their founders. So yeah, the standard will get higher. I think it's a good thing for system. For size on capital, we're always thinking about how we can remain relevant. I think demand that of founders, right, to always be innovating and always be one step ahead of the competition. So why should it be any different when it comes to ourselves? Uh, so I think you know, EBCs have to continue into innovating as well. Uh, I think us plus a couple of other funds in the region have started a scout program this year partially adjusting to the COVID environment. And I think there'll be many more such innovations or small initiatives happening uh, just to remain relevant and remain competitive. Uh, something else that we also spend quite a lot of time thinking about is how we can better value add to our founders in a, a more structured and also get them access to more networks in the region that could be helpful for them or their business. That's amazing because... For so many people outside VC, VCs are like demigods walking down the hallway, right? <laughs> and I was like, oh, wait, you know, demigods have competition too, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, those like Chinese fables, <laughs> there's always competition, right? I think the reality is at the end of the day, like the founders are the superstars. I think VCs are just there to support them. And if you are fortunate enough to get to work with a great founder, I do consider most of the founders that we have invested in to be much smarter and much more capable individuals than I am. So I consider myself very fortunate to be included in their journey. Uh, so it's really about how we can uh, be a good form of support right, uh, in, in every aspect. What's interesting is that because you were there from the beginning, right, the big bang of uh, VC, graciously injected and nurtured by the Singapore government in the early days to where we are today, where, you know, I think the flywheel is starting to accelerate organically without as much capital injections and other dynamics. I think what's interesting is like what you said is that, you know, we're seeing more capital coming in and more opportunities for founders to raise money across the region. But also I think we're seeing like the increase of founders in different geographies, right? I mean, I think historically they were like all the big hubs, right? They're all like people who are studying in the US coming back to Southeast Asia, the brand name universities like Harvard or Stanford. And then now we're seeing, I think, more diversity in homegrown talent rising up, but also in like more distant geographies, not just in terms of countries, but also in not necessarily the tier one, but targeting like tier two, tier three cities within those countries as well, right? So I'm just kind of curious, what do you think about that explosion? What's driving that increase of opportunity? Yeah, I think it's great because, yeah, the catalyst, like you mentioned, is opportunity, right? So it just means that the opportunity is there and it's also getting more and more apparent to more people, regardless of where they're from. So you can be in India and you see opportunities in Vietnam, you be in the US and then you see opportunities in Singapore, uh, like yourself. Right? So I think it's great that Southeast Asia is getting that kind of attention and the opportunities are so apparent to different people. Just like five years ago, uh, it would have been a long educational process to convince someone from the US that there's opportunity in Southeast Asia. So I think that's been a big change. I think that's always the driving force, right? So again, I think VC is fundamentally a people business. 
and DC works wherever there are bright, intelligent, ambitious individuals trying to create something. So that's good for the tech ecosystem. It's also good for the DC ecosystem. And companies get built by talent, not only capital. Uh, capital is just a way of getting talent. So I think more people coming back to Southeast Asia, coming into Southeast Asia because of the opportunities uh, definitely will result in better quality companies. And that's good for the ecosystem as a whole. It's interesting because, you know, when you talk about that increase, it seems like there's a parallel increase, right? Like the, the capital increase of providers and increased capital on one side, funding more opportunities on the other side. We also have more founders of different types, of different geographies, of different locations pursuing that. So I think the overall industry is kind of like accelerating as a flywheel over time. I think one interesting thing that may be non-obvious, of course, is that it is not as if the capital like equally matches between like all the founders. And I think it feels like what's happening is like more similar to the US. We see a broader spread of founders, but then the best founders have become more apparent in that sense. And then they get the lion's share of the capital, right? In that sense, because, you know, there's like 80-20, right? Maybe like 20 of them get 80% of the VC capital raised because everybody sees they're good, you know, there's some signal, people are competing to get in, there's a bit of an auction on the capital side. Do you feel the same or how do you feel about it? I think there's definitely some element of that. I think that's a function of the sort of mismatch, right? between the amount of capital as well as the amount of quality founders in the region. I do think one of the major bottlenecks currently for the growth of the tech ecosystem in the region is talent. So like we discussed earlier, definitely there is more talent now than there was five years ago and it's definitely increasing at a rate higher than five years ago. But definitely that's still one of the bottlenecks. I think talent takes a while to build up. Education takes 20 years to educate a child to be relevant uh, for the workforce. And then, but capital takes like a day, right, to arrive in a new country. So I think there is a mismatch and capital has arrived faster and talent has to catch up. I think it will, for sure, because of the reasons that we discussed earlier. And for now, I think the effect that happens that's non ideal is that capital aggregates sort of maybe unfairly towards those founders that are exceptional in what they do. And in a way, it's also justified uh, because those founders are there because they have yet to achieve something, they have worked hard for something. Uh, they, they, usually, that's, that happens when the founders have a track record that significantly decreases the risk uh, of investing in that founder. So that track record takes time to build, takes a lot of hard work to build. And they have done that. So, so that's the payoff for everything that they have done in their life so far. So I wouldn't say that it's completely unjustified. But definitely, I think that effect will lessen when we get more and more talent into the region. That's actually a super crisp point and very true, which is in the US, no one would really say, I mean, obviously everyone's fighting for talent, overpaying for talent. But I think if someone that was a good idea being launched, you know, you know, some VCs were explicit and I was like, okay, you know, I can easily find 10 people who could be inspired by this and take this approach, a new business model in a different vertical or tackle the same vertical, but maybe with their own twist and better execution. I mean, short of like hardcore deep tech stuff where you need a PhD and spend 20 years researching this, most other ideas, you probably won't be the only one thinking about it, right? So, 
So then it really comes down to the founder and their background. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think what was interesting is that like GPT-3 opened up and actually I noticed that four companies launched at the same time because they all realized the opportunity in using that in the marketing stack, right? And so there was very much like you know, simultaneous innovation. I think what's also interesting is that as a result, I think Converse is what I've heard in Southeast Asia is like some people say like, oh, capital is actually a boat, right? You know, like because of this talent is synchronous, they're able to snowball capital faster. Because they're able to snowball capital faster, capital is actually a defensive advantage because they're able to recruit talent faster, grow across different geographies better. And that's a very rare statement to be had in <laughs> Southeast Asia. I'm sorry. Yeah, to have it's rare in the US to do that because when you say that in the US, everyone's like thinking SoftBank, uh, you know, kind of like dropping a massive amount to supposedly kind of like grow them to become like death stars, you know, <laughs> in their verticals, right? Whereas in Southeast Asia, that seems to be possible at an early stage because of that snowball and early lead slash first mover dynamic. Yeah, and I think it's possible to generate that snowball at earlier stage here, really because cap- talent is more limited. So when you get capital faster, you get talent faster as well. Uh, so you start generating that snowball earlier. But in most cases, the snowball starts with talent first, right? the founder. Without that, you can't get the capital to get it started. I mean, there are some exceptions. So I guess uh, like politically connected individuals uh, would be one example um, that also would be something relevant to Southeast Asia, not so relevant in the US. Um, I think those are definitely exceptions rather than the norm. Yeah, I think there's also a very true thing. I mean, it feels like in the US, it's very much like, you know, the first generation of startups, tech startups, a lot of them were connected to technology or early pioneers. And then the second generation of talent, because they were made rich by options or they were trained by those first generation of companies, they, as a result, have the legwork and experience and reality needed to create and found these companies, right? Whereas I think Southeast Asia feels like very much the first generation we talked about, right? Which is, you know, they are connected because they they understand the industry or they understand the geography or because of their family connections. So I think there's something that it's not like everyone's shouting about it, but it feels like people know about it. It's like, oh, you know, that's an advantage, right? Yeah, it's like an open secret. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So everybody asked around, I was like, oh, okay, they succeeded because, you know, X is Y, right? You know, <laughs> D succeeded because A is B, right? And then you're like, one thing I noticed, of course, is I think I feel like the newer generation of startups are a little bit different from that. I think they tend to be a little bit more, well, it's not, maybe it's less obvious, but it doesn't feel like that's the case because I think they're much more like in tune, more of like, okay, you know, this is the market and what they need, right? Or this is what my demographic needs. Or, this is what millennials want. So I think it feels like the asks uh, are a little bit different and the backgrounds are a little bit different as well. Yeah, yeah, that's true for sure. I'm just kind of curious because you mentioned earlier like US VCs and Southeast Asia VCs. What are trends do you see on the role itself, right? Because you mentioned it, you know, it's like you yourself in the early days knew nothing (laughs) because it was such an early role, right? And then the US already was pretty structured and fast forward 10 years now and I think it feels like Southeast Asia is starting to formalize the role and then you know, the US continues to formalize or accelerate even more like with like VC credentialing and universities and things like that. So I'm just kind of curious, what do you think about people who are interested in the VC lifestyle? Like how would they think about getting to VC? I do think it's, it's definitely more structured in the US 
in the sense that you can easily bucket VCs into a few backgrounds or profiles, right? So there will be your guys that came from a traditional finance background. So this would be professional fund managers, basically. That's the skill set they bring to the table that LPs appreciate. So they would really know how to manage a fund uh, that scales over time right? and then successively raise larger funds and still be able to deploy that efficiently and then build teams around running deals, etc. I think that's also the, the operator type DC, which is basically someone that uh, would have a very high amount of personal branding in the community. That would be the main reason why they get allocation for most deals and also would be the type of investor that would be very hands-on with their portfolio. And I think the, the third category, uh, which is still pretty rare in the US, but definitely more common there than in Southeast Asia, would be just folks that have uh, sort of graduated through the VC ecosystem. Right? So they would have started out as an analyst at some point and then uh, made a few good investments with their partners in previous funds and then eventually came out and raised their own fund. So I think Southeast Asia the ecosystem hasn't been around long enough for that third category to exist. Right? You start start starting to see the at least the first two categories in Southeast Asia. So that's generally how I look at it. But overall I would say it's still a really unstructured environment and there are a lot of exceptions. Uh pretty much I, I would think a lot more exceptions compared to most other industries. For one example would be we actually recently started hiring for an associate. Uh, it didn't work out for various reasons. Uh, one of the candidates that we were seriously considering uh, was someone who was a founder uh, in the past, but actually didn't have a university degree. Uh, he pretty much never worked in a formal job uh, before entering the VC space. So I think that's that's something that not be considered a disadvantage at all in the VC space, I believe. It definitely wasn't a concern for us at all, but I think in a lot of other jobs, it probably would. So I, I think for people that want to enter the VC space, uh, again, I, I do think VC is very much a people business. It's important to understand that. So your network within the technical system is super important. Your own branding or reputation within the ecosystem, how founders can relate to you and just basically find you a nice person that they can have coffee with and bounce ideas off with. That's very important. Right? So I think those factors would be more important than actually having some form of formal training. Having said that, I think there are some funds in Southeast Asia now that do want to hire people with some form of experience. And that is definitely the case in the US as well for most of your tier one funds. But for us at Saison Capital, we're pretty happy picking someone who has these other soft qualities but none of the technical skills and then you can train them in the technical skills right? whereas i think it's a bit more difficult to train someone in the softer skills that they need for the job yeah i mean i think it's really admirable about i think your open you know recruitment process in fact myself i forgot to mention that and i used to be a venture scout with you all and it was a great experience. And I really admired, I think, your culture of remote, asynchronous, getting stuff done, global mandate, which is actually quite rare, actually, for, I would say, like a company and as a VC as well. And it's no surprise to me that, you know, it kind of ripples into your hiring process to keep a wide aperture and be open to opportunity as it comes along. So I think that's good on you. And thanks for sharing about that. 
you know, I'm kind of curious as well. We just, you know, had a mandate on fintech as a corporate VC, and you're looking at the US and Southeast Asia. So I'm just kind of curious, how does it all work? You're sourcing views globally. How do you search for that? Do you like scrape every fintech company <laughs> in the world and you go through that. But I also noticed that you guys are very consistent about publishing your thesis, right? You know, about embedded finance. Like these are the kind of startups that we're interested in. This is our point of view. You publish on medium. You know, it's kind of interesting to see that kind of work. So how does that work? You know, because the world is a big mandate. I mean, Southeast Asia is easy, right? Because it's like, okay, there's a couple thousand every year, you know, that are of a certain size, for example. But globally for a certain domain, you know, so how do you go about it? Yeah, I think it helps that we are we have tried to build a brand around fintech specifically. So we do have a sector agnostic mandate, but just because of the existing brand from our parent company being a financial institution, we are particularly competitive in the fintech space. So we decided to double down on that since inception. So a lot of the content you see we publish uh, is really around pieces related to either fintech or embedded finance. And I think one important point to note is that although a lot of these content pieces, um, when you read them now, they seem like quite the articles that, that most people agree with. But at the point when we were looking for, when we had come up with those pieces, uh, they weren't so common and there was actually quite a bit of educating that we had to do, which was the main reason why we published it. So FinTech, as a broad example, when we had started the fund in middle of 2019, we said we wanted to start a FinTech-focused fund or FinTech buyers fund. The feedback that we got from a lot of people was, uh, why FinTech? You know, FinTech in Southeast Asia is saturated. Everything that needs to be done has been done. Like plenty of lenders in the different countries. But we believe that there was more that could be done by like just looking at other markets like the US. So fast forward two years that has uh, come to fruition, I think most people now would believe that there's still a lot to be done uh, in the fintech space. Um, the other thing that we are quite known for pushing in the market is also our thesis of embedded finance. So that's basically non-fintech companies that have a data distribution advantage. So they start integrating certain fintech products or services into the platform. That again, when we started pushing it, was something that people questioned quite a bit. And it was also something that we had to educate people on. Uh, it was fairly complex concept to articulate at that point. Whereas now when we say embedded finance, uh, most, most people sort of get what we mean. So I think there's been that educating process and that's where our content has been helpful. And the other thing is that when we produce content like that people can be quite skeptical about or can debate with us on, uh, it does draw like-minded people to us. Right? So they, they do react to that content um, because they would be facing a similar situation that we did, which is that they believe in something, but most people seem to be thinking the opposite. So that content causes a reaction from them. And then that's where we get to find like-minded founders. So that's been very effective for us, uh, both from a lead generation perspective as well as from a brand building perspective. And that's how we managed to get through flow globally. Then I think the other thing that's been quite effective, of course, like you mentioned, is our scout program as well. So our scouts come from so many different countries with really exceptional individuals working with us uh, that we're quite thankful for. So they do bring in quite a bit of deal flow as well. 
And then aside from that, I think just the team's background of having worked in so many countries. Uh, so we have myself that has some experience in, in the US, uh, some experience working in Philippines as well. And then we have Chiao who used to work for Rocket. You know, we have Long who also is a US citizen, but Vietnamese uh, by heritage. Uh, so I think that sort of global-minded uh, team that has really worked, lived in multiple countries in the past, uh, different worldviews, different networks, I think that all gels together quite well. That's basically how we've done it. Uh, pretty open about it. I don't think there's, there's anything to hide. That's been our strategy and, and it's been working so far. So it's something that we'll always be working hard on is to be on that cutting edge uh, building thesis and hypotheses right, around certain sectors or subsectors, especially for fintech, so that we are always finding founders that are also uh, on that cutting edge of developing their their thinking around the industry, and then that's how we get connected. That's amazing. I'm so curious because the quality of these articles are very strong, right? I mean, I think they have a strong point of view. They are well researched. There's an effort to put it as a framework, and then you guys actually update it over time as well based on the feedback. So I think that's really been quite impressive. And I've seen in founder groups, sometimes someone's like, what do you think about this startup? And then someone shares uh, one of your articles, like, you know, thought pieces in response to that, which is like a framework of how to think about that startup rather than a reaction to that startup itself, which is really impressive, which, by the way, we'll also link to in the transcripts as well here. And I'm kind of curious, like, how does the team think it through? Like, is it like, Chris, you're just like, I don't know, you're just catching coffee with founder and then just the ideas pops in your brain, like a phrase pops up? Or is it like individual people are running with it or you guys are virtually brainstorming over Slack and Zoom? Like, how does that process cook for you guys? Yeah, so a lot of brainstorming over Slack. Uh, we probably have more, we definitely have more Slack channels than I, I can manage currently. And I think something else that most people wouldn't expect is a lot of these ideas actually come from our founders. So we try to support our founders as much as possible. But I think we're also very fortunate to have founders that also support us in return. Most people wouldn't immediately think of that as something intuitive, like founders supporting their VCs. Our founders are, like I said earlier, all more ambitious and smarter folks than I am. And they are on the ground, so they see what's happening. Uh, they're constantly thinking about ways to make their business more competitive. And of course, they bounce those ideas with us, and then we brainstorm with them. And then we, some of these theses come out of that brainstorming session. And then, of course, they have to be comfortable with us sharing it. But a lot of the times, it benefits them as well. So if you notice, I think there are a couple of articles as well where we are specifically talking about certain portfolio companies. That's also something that we intend to do in the future. But I think the, the general lesson there is that a lot of it actually comes from our ecosystem right, that we have built over time. So uh, the founders that we work with, the scouts that we work with, of course, our, our personal network friends uh, that support us also matter. And then everything comes together to, to sort of help us remain constantly ideating uh, on, on new thoughts, new ideas. Yeah. yeah, I noticed that you've definitely been able to not only like summarize those ideas, but also create 
you know, at least usable terms for those ideas, right? You know, which I find is such a big problem because, you know, it's like when all of us are on the table as founders or as VCs, you know, it's like, what is this category? You know, what's the title of that category, right? And it doesn't need to be a very sexy name, but, you know, if it helps to have that term, and I think you guys have done a great job working to encapsulate that as well. And I think in response to something you just said, yeah, I think a lot of founders are just scared because they're like, oh, I have a secret sauce. You know, this is how I'm explaining the pitch decks. And I very much when I'm talking to them as a coach or as a you know, peer that they're asking for support from, what I share with them is, hey, if everybody understands what your category is, at least if they believe in a the category, they're going to believe in you because you're like the first in that category, right? You're creating the category of the technology. But if you don't even have the thought leadership behind it and you don't have time or to some extent as well, you're conflicted, right? <laughs> because you're obviously asking for investment. But if someone is willing to write that piece, let them write it, right? Because it's going to create a category and then people are going to start coming in, start understanding. Talent is going to read the article to understand what your company is about. Follow-on capital is going to read the article to get smart because they're busy Googling on their first day. Uh, you know, And I think there's something that I see you doing a great job, actually. And I think that's relatively rare, I think, in Southeast Asia and being executed well as well. For sure. Both for us and our founders, we don't have to keep talking about the same things <laughs> to every person that we meet. But rather, hey, this is an article we wrote. <laughs> uh, read it before our coffee session. <laughs> Yeah, that's so true as well. That's actually a really good point. That's, and I think that's actually a good strategy for both founders and for VCs, right? I mean, because, you know, what I notice is like sometimes like, you know, because we're busy meeting people, we keep having the same conversation over and over again. So why don't we just like prepare some materials just to help people scan it, if not the day before, at least, you know, on the ride there <laughs> or before the Zoom call so that, you know, the conversation kind of like goes to the deeper second order kind of conversation really quickly, right? Rather than recirculate around the basic principles. I mean, I think one thing I've noticed as well is like also because the norms are changing a little bit, right? Because in the past, I think if we did that, like, hey, read this article about us before it, you know, our thesis, it feels a little bit more like rude, right? Like, or like, let's schedule stuff manually. Whereas now it's like, okay, here's my blog, here's my Calendly, you know, scheduler. People are like kind of seem to be front-loading more of interactions or their brand, I would say. I don't know what it is. Yeah, their background or expertise. Do you think it's because it's a function like maybe Southeast Asia's maturance ecosystem or is it because we're all remote and we can be more efficient and it's more normal that way? Or maybe because we're just more tech savvy, both on the VC and founder side? Like, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think tech savviness for sure. So you're trying to find ways using technology to make your meetings more efficient. But I think the driving force behind that is information of transparency or less information asymmetry, uh, which is one of the other aspects where I think the Southeast Asia ecosystem is getting more and more similar to the US. I think in the US, these things have been common practice uh, for a long time. One of the practices that I really like that I see some US founders uh, of VCs doing, um, which might be considered in Southeast Asia, is that uh, they actually send, or uh, there's a link in their email signature that is basically read to understand how to interact with me. <laughs> so if you send an email to me, put this in the title, right? Uh, or if you arrange an appointment with me, try to 
uh, I prefer Zoom calls over meeting for coffee, right? Because meeting for coffee, uh, you have to spend time queuing up for the coffee or that. Right? So basically, I'm just telling you upfront that I don't find it rude if you want to meet me uh, and you don't want to buy me coffee, right? That, that's perfectly fine. So that in the US context works. In Southeast Asia, I, I would think most people would find it quite off-putting and be arrogant. Right? But I think we're, we're slowly gravitating towards being more open with our information, and especially personal information, personal thoughts like uh, about industry sectors, etc. I think some of this could be a competitive edge in Southeast Asia five years ago. Uh, I think now and increasingly so it won't be. So just like ideas around business models, ideas again are just ideas, right? but execution is like 99.9% of it. So in the US, ideas are free-flowing. Um, no, there's a lot less attempt to hide it. I think that's what will happen in Southeast Asia as well. Uh, it's already happening, of course, in the, the operating space among founders. It will definitely happen uh, in the VC space as well. Yeah, that's amazing because... You know, you just struck me that one of the key phrases for Southeast Asia actually and trans-wise is actually what you mentioned, information asymmetry and transparency is probably like the biggest trend actually over the past 10 years and both on the VC and operator side. And it feels like it's going to continue going in the next 10 years as well. So I think that's actually a very good insight actually. And I would just like want to double highlight it for anyone listening is that's actually like a really good second order insight here about what's actually happening because, yeah, because with less information asymmetry, with more transparency, yeah, it's a bad thing for incumbents in the sense that, like you said, it becomes more competitive. You can't keep it as a defensive advantage. You're going to get more competition of your portfolio. On the other hand, you know, like you, you kind of mentioned earlier in the thing, you're seeing more founders, more diversity, more dispersion of ideas and opportunities being tackled and better matching of capital in time to come. So I think, I think it's really awesome. I think that's a really good insight, actually. Yeah, I mean, we learned it in Econs 101, right? So <laughs> the closer you get to perfect competition, uh, the less information asymmetry you have. Yeah, I feel like we have another podcast episode just talking about information asymmetry, <laughs> advanced le- you know, level two thinking. Um, <laughs> we'll be very uh, attracted. And on that, and I wouldn't call it a thesis, but whatever, and that, that analysis. I guess, um, you know, last question, obviously, you know, thank you for sharing your time. You know, it's like, you know, if you could go back 10 years in time, what advice would you have given yourself when you were first starting out? Yeah, so I think when I started off my career, I was very concerned about how quickly I would make money. <laughs> I don't know if it's a outcome of like a Singaporean upbringing or it's a, a story for another time, but I didn't grow up in a very well-to-do uh, family. I grew up in a single parent, a working mom, so my brother and I had a lot of time to ourselves with very little parental guidance. And money, we didn't have financial stability. So money became very important. Uh, and that, that was like top of mind for me when I started working. And of course, I had a girlfriend back then planning to get married. You know, the usual Singaporean concerns. Um, so a lot of my thinking around where I should go and what I should do career-wise was around optimizing for how I could earn as much money as possible while, of course, not working like crazy hours right? in, in such a way that it's still sustainable. I think if I could do it again, I would approach it 
very differently. I definitely would have taken uh, more risks. So I think starting a company would have been something that I could have tried doing earlier on. Of course, it probably would have failed. I don't think most, I mean, me at 25, I, I think wouldn't have been a founder uh, VCs would have invested in. Uh, but I think just the experience uh, of starting something and failing uh, is a valuable uh, it's a valuable experience right, from a learning perspective. And also, I think I would have started building uh, my reputation in the ecosystem a lot earlier, which is something that I think my team currently, we do have quite a young team uh, overall. Um, but I think all of them are thinking about these things a lot better manner than, than I did. So most of them are in their late 20s. They are already starting to build a really good track record uh, and reputation among founders in the ecosystem, among fellow VCs. That's something that I would have one. If I could do again, I would have put in more effort to do earlier on. I think years ago, when I started in DC, I didn't have that foresight, which is strange, right? Because I was concurrently looking at the US as well. I think it's true that change happens slowly and then quickly. Uh, so I always thought that, okay, we'll be as competitive as the US 20 years from now. Right? <laughs> it happened a lot quicker than I expected. And reputation, uh, branding, like these things take time to build up. So I, I do wish I had put in more effort to, to build these things earlier on. Amazing. Thank you so much. And I think what you shared about, you know, what you would have wanted is also very comforting for a lot of people, right? Because, you know, there's a lot of people who have thinking about setting up something or have done something and failed or done something and, you know, still figuring stuff out. And I think the reflection is very true. And I'm glad you got to share your story here. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs>